these people. Maybe often, maybe these are people you see on a regular basis. Maybe these are people you see only incidentally. But either way, you struggle to treat these people in the kind of way that we read about last week. And we'll come back to that in a moment. Maybe it's a coworker or a boss, a neighbor, a family member or a friend of a family member. Uh, maybe it is a politician or a famous entertainer or just someone in our culture that you don't know, you, you've never met, you don't interact with personally, but this is still a person whom you have a very hard time showing respect, maybe in the way that you speak or in the way that you even think about this individual. You struggle to show kindness, gentleness, and humility. You struggle not to speak evil about this person or these individuals. You struggle not to quarrel or be contentious or to spur on conflict with these folks. So I just want you to keep these faces in your mind as we go through this sermon. Now maybe there's the, there's the rare exception out there and, and you're thinking, there's no one I can think of. I get along with everybody, great. Uh, that is probably none of us. Uh, I know as I was thinking through this, there were faces that came into my mind as well. And, and maybe it's not a face that you would picture at this moment, but maybe there's an experience from your past where there, you can certainly look back and you can say, yeah, that person, that person, oh yeah, that person. So we all have these people in the present and also throughout our past. And we'll, we're guaranteed to have these people in the future as well. So there are these folks that for us lie ahead. So I want you to keep these faces in your mind and we'll come back to them in a moment. So we spent our time last week answering a what question. What is the life that we have been called to live among unbelievers? What's the kind of life that we've been called to live out in the world, out in society? This could also be seen as a, as a how question. How should we conduct ourselves around these people? And so we spent last week looking at these questions. And the main idea last week was that we treat people with respect courtesy, consideration, kindness, and gentleness. We honor authorities. As we looked at, we are, help, we are helpful, we are harmless, and we are those who conduct ourselves with humility. And let me just look at the passage before we get into our passage for today. Let's go ahead and just reread the passage that we saw last week because the logical relationship between today's passage and that passage is very important. So last week, this is what we looked at. Remind them, Paul says to Titus, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. That's what we looked at last week, and that's the kind of conduct that we are to have, the kind of attitude, the kind of speaking that we are to have out in the world among unbelievers. And today we come to the why question. And so our passage for today is over here on the wall, and it begins with this word, for. And that tells us because, essentially. Uh, could, you could translate that because. We do verses 1 and 2. We conduct ourselves in these ways because of this. Because of what we find in verses 3 to 7. The passage that follows what we looked at last week. Why are we as Christians to conduct ourselves in this way? And so the title for the sermon today is A Gospel Reason. A gospel reason for a gospel respect, the kind of respect that we looked at last time. So if you go ahead and put that slide up for us. A gospel reason, and this is really kind of one reason that is fourfold. 
It's uh, one reason that has kind of four parts to it or four units to it. First, our similar past. Second, our gracious conversion. Thirdly, our transformed heart. And finally, our firm standing. That's what we find as we come to verses 3 to 7. And that gives us a basis for the kind of acting and doing that we find in verses 1 and 2. And this also tells us that where there is a deep, heartfelt recognition of what we find in the verses that we're going to look at today, a recognition of all that's packed into chapter 3, verses 3 to 7, where there is a recognition of that, there will naturally flow out the kind of life that treats others with respect. So you're sitting here this morning and you had a lot of faces come up at the very beginning. Had a lot of faces. And maybe there are people even now that you're in deep conflict with and you're, and you're convicted about it because you're a believer and you know that you're constantly in conflict with this unbeliever and that's bringing reproach on the name of Christ. And you're wondering, how in the world do I do this? I just, I, I go to work, I, I engage with this person, and they infuriate me, and I lose it. And I don't treat them with this kind of respect, this kind of courtesy and consideration. How do I change? The answer, quite simply, is a recognition of all that we find here in the passage that we'll look at today. The deeper that we go into the truths of this passage, the more naturally the kind of life of respecting others that we will find coming to fruition in our lives. So let's go and look at our passage, verses 3 to 7. You can read it on the wall or wherever. Titus 3, verses 3 to 7. This is another mountain peak passage, by the way. Not just in Titus, there are sort of two, two mountain peaks in Titus. It's this one, 2, 11 to 14, and then there's this one. But these, in some ways, represent kind of a, a nice high mountain range in all of the New Testament, really. So these are, these are glorious passages of Scripture to occupy our time with. So let's read. Verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy... Hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Well, in Paul's fashion, Pauline fashion, verses 4 to 7 is one sentence. Just like I've told you before, you know, in Ephesians chapter 1, this, this amazing passage of all the benefits of our salvation. Uh, verses 3 to 14, I believe it's all the way to 14 in chapter 2 of Ephesians, is also one sentence. I mean, does this much glory and doxology and worship come out of one sentence, or even for that matter, one paragraph of our lives? This is the way in which God worked in Paul such that he who saw the glorified Jesus on the road to Damascus and realized that this God was 100% true, that the Christians he had been persecuting were right, that Jesus had died for sinners, he had been raised from the dead, 
He saw that Jesus and that stayed with him his entire life. And it was that worship and that glorying in Jesus that was always with him. And I would submit to us this morning that the more that the glory of Christ grows in our hearts as we meditate on all these truths we've been singing this morning. There's no better time, by the way, than Christmas to consider the glory of Jesus. And as the glory of Jesus grows, a recognition of that, we too will be able to have this sort of outburst of worship and doxology as we think about our Lord. So let's pray, ask God for help this morning as we come to his precious word. Our merciful Father, God, we, we bow before you this morning in praise that thousands of years before Christ came, many, many years before Christ came, you made known his coming through your prophets who were moved along, as Peter tells us, by the Holy Spirit. They did not speak on their own accord, but they spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is what we find when Moses, writing in Genesis 3.15, describes the promise that God made to Adam and Eve. That Christ would come and crush our enemy. God, our enemy, he ravages those we love. He holds in bondage many whom we struggle not to hate. And Lord, this morning we ask that you will make us those who do not hate because we recognize that those individuals are enslaved to Satan and that Christ has come to liberate men from that slavery and that apart from him we would also still be in that slavery god we thank you that christ came and he crushed the head of the serpent as you promised to eve and adam all those years ago in the midst of their abominable sin and lord we are like them you give us everything and we sin against you we we reject you and yet you have given us this glorious salvation. You've given us this promise in the midst of judgment. And God, we praise you today for this grace. And we thank you, God, for all the ways that you have made known to us your grace in Christ from the beginning, throughout the pages of Holy Scripture, and in the coming of Christ, and in the preaching of the gospel of the apostles, and of the preaching of the gospel that has gone forth throughout these 2,000 years as you have kept your church and established it in, in lands far, far away from, from Judea. Even today here, we are in a land far away from Judea and you are our God and we worship you through this Jesus who died and rose again there many years ago in that far off land. And so God, we just glorify you today because we are thankful for this gospel and thankful that you are sovereign over history and that from the beginning you, you made these promises and throughout history you brought these promises 
to fulfillment. And even in our lives today, we recognize that you, the God of promise, is also a God of provision. And that regardless of what we come here today with, struggles with our own sin, struggles with disease and affliction of various kinds, enemies at work and in other places, people who make life very difficult for us. God, we are reminded of all the hope that we have in this Jesus who came to save us and who reigns in our hearts. And so God, would you help us today just to be there and glorify you through that. Help us today to to see clearly what is found in your word and to apply it to our lives. And would your spirit do a great work in each of us, we ask. In Christ's name, amen. So first, we come to see our similar past. Let's look at verse three, our similar past. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. This is one of the many places in the New Testament where the life of an unbeliever is placed under the microscope. You get this throughout the New Testament. There's some, some, some of these key passages that, that kind of dig into the heart, to the life of an unbeliever, and make clear to us what's going on there. What was going on in our lives before we came to Christ? What is going on in every person whom we know who does not know Jesus? Paul places the life of the unbeliever under that microscope here. And here's what we find. Anti-wisdom. Anti-authority. We see this in our children. Even in our little children. The tiniest ones. They don't like authority. They want to do what they want to do. It starts at the very beginning. Anti-wisdom. Anti-authority. Anti-truth. Deceived, we're told here, the father of lies, children of your father, the devil, is what Jesus tells the religious leaders because they are deceived and deceivers, anti-humility, anti-love. That is the life of an unbeliever, foolish, rebellious, Deceived, enslaved, angry, destructive, jealous, and hateful. That is what we find just in this one verse packed in there about an unbeliever. Slaves to impurity and to lawlessness. Romans 6, 19. Dead in trespasses and sins. Sons of disobedience. Governed by passions and desires. Children of wrath. Ephesians 2. A life devoted to unfruitful works of darkness. Not just works of darkness, but those which bring about nothing in the world. Those which are futile works that produce no good thing. Darkness, death, deception. This is the life of an unbeliever. And by the way, This is not always apparent to us. It really isn't. This is hard to swallow sometimes even for those in our family who are unbelievers. Who don't seem to be this. We don't see this in them. He's a nice guy. She's a nice lady. He's a nice person. Just trying to find his way. 
But this is what the Bible tells us. This is God's view of the sinner. We need to understand that. This is God's view of the sinner. Although we may see one thing on the face of it, this is what God says about the life of a person who does not know him. And this goes for every person who does not know him. This is the life at its core of every unbeliever, every single human being who does not know Jesus. And here's the main thing every single one of us needs to see. For we ourselves were once just like this. Every single one of us. Every single one of us was once just like this. Even if you were saved as a small child. Because as I said before, we see all of this. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will drive it far from him, we learn in Proverbs. That children do not obey authority. That they do not follow after truth. They are not humble, they are proud little things. They are proud little things. They do not love, they seek self. We see it even in the tiniest ones. And so even for those of us who were saved as little children, we were just a little seed waiting to blossom into all that we find in this passage. All of us were once like this. So I want you to go back to those faces in your mind, those individual people that popped up at the very beginning of the sermon today as you started to think about folks who make it very difficult for you to love and show respect and show kindness and show gentleness, those people in your mind. And I want you to consider this. You are looking at a picture of yourself. You are looking at a picture of your past life. You are looking at a picture of the old you. When you look at a picture, when you think about all those people in your life who for various reasons, because of their folly or whatever else, for various reasons make you just so angry and infuriated and trouble you, you are looking truly at a picture of yourself in the past, the old you. Now it might be showing up a little differently. And this is important because we recognize that there are degrees of sin I remember as a child, you know, growing up, I was, I was always told, you, you hear at church, that all sins are equal. Well, we know that's not true, because Jesus says to Pilate that the sins of those who handed you over are greater. So we know all sins aren't equal in God's sight, or God wouldn't be just. A person who kills six million people is going to have to give an account for killing six million people before a just God. All sins are not the same in God's sight because God judges each sin justly. But nonetheless, we see that all of this sin is present in us, was present in us before we came to Christ, even though it may not pop up and show its ugly head in quite the same way. We see people out there and we think, well, that wasn't me even before I became a Christian. But what were you? Before you became a Christian. What were you doing? And if you're honest with yourself. As you think about the things that person does. You will remember even then. Before you became a Christian. The things that you were doing that are similar. The ways you treated people. That were similar. To the ways these people treat you. So it might be showing up a little differently. But essentially you're looking at a picture. Of your past self. Your past 
life. And this realization guided the Apostle Paul as he went around all these churches in all these pagan places and he preached the gospel to, to these self-righteous Jews on the one hand, Romans 2, and to these pagan, abominable idol worshipers, Romans 1, in all these various cities throughout the Mediterranean preaching the gospel of God. What was it that kept Paul humble as he looked out into the face of all of these wicked individuals who were everything we just described? What kept Paul humble was the fact that he was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. That's how Paul describes himself. See, Paul could never go too far down the self-righteous road because Paul knew that apart from God's grace, he was precisely like all of these people. And in fact, even worse, Paul, if he had been there that day, would have crucified Jesus. We know that he would have been standing there right next to those other religious leaders. Why? Because he did it to his people. And that's the reason why Jesus appears to Paul on the road to Damascus. And he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because Saul was persecuting Jesus' people. So Paul knew how evil he was before he came to faith in Christ. And I think that that would have guided him as he moved about all of this sin in the Mediterranean world. And he related to all of these sinners. And it is this recognition of our similar past that gives rise to kindness and humility as we engage with unbelievers. We must always remember that when we look at them in all of their sin, in all of their frustrating, annoying, vile sin, even insurmountable sin, that we were once there as well. But then we're tempted to do this, and this is just the pride in our hearts. We're tempted to think, yeah, okay, fine. But that was me then. But I became a Christian. I started following Jesus. I chose God. Those wicked people just need to do what I did and they'll be fine. And see, this is the problem. The humility only begins to go so far. And so if we just stop here at this verse, if we just stop here at verse 3... The humility can quickly evaporate. We lose it. We can say, yes, I was like that, but not anymore. Not anymore. Humility just begins to go away. But by the grace of God, our text does not allow that to happen. Because then we go right into verse 4 and following. So that leads us to our second point, our gracious conversion. Let's look at verses 4 to 5. Our gracious conversion. Verses four to five. Please don't stop. Verse three. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So the first, most obvious observation to make here is that for the Christian, a fundamental life-altering change has taken place. We are different now. We have been converted. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But there is for the Christian, we need to understand this, there is for the Christian a then versus now, a past versus present, an old versus new. And let me just say something. This needs to be something that you consider in your own life, in your own conversion. 
in your own testimony, as you look back over the course of your life, it is, it is very important that you understand that you weren't just born into Christianity. Okay, maybe you grew up in a Christian home. And maybe you can't isolate the time at which, the, the point at which God brought you from death to life. You can't isolate a specific point. Maybe you can't even isolate a specific kind of time frame, a, a, a summer or a year or whatever the case may be. But here's the one thing you have to understand is if you are a Christian, know this, if you are a Christian, this happened in your life. And that means that if this didn't happen, you're not a Christian. You're not a Christian. Every Christian must be converted must be changed from something, from a then to a now, from a past to a present, from an old to a new. So, for those of us who are Christians, why are we different? Why are we different? Why do we speak of everything just discussed as a past experience or an old condition. We read verse 3, for we ourselves were once all of these things, and we can say, by the grace of God, we can say, past, old. That does not define me any longer. And Paul's answer to this question as to why we can say this is simply God. That's it. He gives one Answer And the answer is God. His character and saving activity towards us. That and that alone stands between the old you and the new you. See this. Old you, God knew you. Old you, God knew you. Three words are used here of God as our Savior. Goodness, loving kindness, and mercy. Mercy. We love this word. We like to use this word. What does it mean? It essentially means concern expressed for someone in need. Mercy always has the idea of neediness in it. And particularly neediness in affliction. The, the kind of thing that we find when we open up to uh, in the book of Exodus. And we see all the suffering of the people there. God's people in slavery in Egypt. And God looks down upon them. And he has mercy on them. He sees them in their needy state. In their afflicted state. In fact he sees them in the kind of way. And this is us in our conversion that we find in verse 3. He sees us in our anti-wisdom, in our anti-authority, our anti-truth, our anti-love. He sees us being hated and being hateful. He looks down upon this and he acts in that. He pulls us up out of that pit. Goodness, kindness, the quality of being helpful or beneficial. And then we find this idea of loving kindness. Loving kindness literally should be translated love for mankind or love for humanity. That is what we find characterized here about God. God is merciful, he is good and kind, and he shows loving kindness or a love for, the, for humankind, a love for humanity. And all of these ideas are present in Psalm 103, 1-14. I was thinking as I got to this point in preparing this sermon, I thought, okay, so what what do I say about these ideas? What do I say about mercy and about goodness and about loving kindness? How can I unpack this? And then it just kind of, it came to me that this, all of this is clearly uh, discussed by the psalmist in Psalm 103. We've, we have a song that we sing based on this psalm. 
Psalm 103, verses 1 to 14. The psalmist has said it by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit far better than I could ever describe any of this. So I want to read this portion of God's word to you. Psalm 103, 1 to 14. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity. Who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. There's that affliction. Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always accuse, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins. Praise God. He does not deal with us according to our sins, or we would all die and be separated from him in hell. He does not, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And here's his love for humanity, expressed also in his mercy, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. That is God's love, his mercy, his kindness, his goodness to us, his graciousness. That is why we are who we are. So as our text says, our salvation is from God, from God's character, his goodness, his love, his mercy, his disposition, as we would understand it, his interior disposition, his heart disposition towards us, his very character, his attributes, and his outward works, all of this constitutes the basis for our salvation. And this means something very important that we must recognize, and that is that our salvation does not come from our character or our works. It does not come from anything, get this, inside of me or outside of me. It does not come from some kind of glimmer of of. of Goodness that just kind of pops up in me and and reaches out and takes hold of God and grabs hold of goodness because we know from verse three that that is not the kind of person reaching up into heaven, grabbing hold of God, grabbing hold of his goodness and his kindness. It's the kind of person who is, as Paul describes in Romans 1, a hater of God, not a lover of God. So how does all of this Connect back to the way we treat unbelievers in verses 1 and 2. Because remember what we are talking about. Verses 1 to 2, we're told how we are to treat unbelievers, what we are to do. And then in verses 3 to 7, we're told why. We're given a reason for that. So how does what we're looking at now at this moment, our gracious conversion, connect back to that? 
Well, the reason we treat them this way is this. We as Christians were once in sin just like everyone else. Just like everybody else. And we are different now. Only, only because of God's saving mercy. That's it. That's it. One thing, one thing separates you now from then and you from them. God's saving mercy and that is it. It was God's saving mercy that brought repentance and faith into your heart. So that you could respond to the gospel of grace and receive God's justifying grace. Right standing before him. That repentance and faith was given to you because God gave you a new heart by which you would fear him and love him and know him forever. That is why we responded to the gospel in repentance and faith. Another way that this bears on how we treat others is that God showed kindness to humanity when humanity was totally in sin. We, we see this in, in Romans 5. It talks about God demonstrating his own love for us and sending his son for us while we were still sinners. We find that throughout the, the epistle of Romans that, that we, we did not earn anything and God did this for us out of our, in the midst of our sinfulness. And God justifies the ungodly. He makes godly and righteous those who are ungodly. In other words, God treated us with kindness and love when we did not deserve it. And now as those who belong to God, who are children of God and heirs of God, the people of God, the possession of God, we too are always in the business of this, showing kindness and mercy to people who don't deserve it. That's what our God did for us. So that is the connection, I think, a very important connection between what we find here in these verses and what we find in verses one to two. We are not waiting for people to earn our mercy. We're not waiting for people to earn our kindness. God, if he would have waited on us to earn his kindness, it never would have happened. And, and here's the thing we need to understand. It's never gonna happen with the people in your life either. Because they are everything we see in verse three. Love them in the midst of that. Be merciful and kind to them in the midst of that, just as our father was to us. And all of this leads us to consider what God did to us when he saved us. And that leads to our third point today, and that is our transformed heart. So we have our similar past, our gracious conversion, and then our transformed heart. Look at verses five to six. It says, he saved us, and then we get these words, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. This work of God has occurred inside of us. As Jeremiah 31, 33 says, we've been given a new heart with the law of God written on it. The Holy Spirit cleanses us from sin and gives us a reborn and a renewed heart. James 1.18 says that of his own will, and hear this, of his own will, God brought us forth by the word 
of truth. John chapter 3 describes this as being born again. And we find this language also in 1 Peter 1. That we were regenerated. We were born again by the will of God. And listen to this. As we hear the word of truth. So you're here this morning and you hear this. You kind of like, okay. I'm not a Christian. But I'm, I'm, you know, I'm hearing this and I'm thinking, okay, I, I want to look into this further. How might I be born again? And the answer to that question is, there's no step, by, there's no step, step process. You, you don't do it. God has to do it. But here's the good news. The wonderful, glorious news is that he's in the business of doing that. He loves doing that. That's what he wants to do. And the means by which he will do that in your life is by the hearing of the word. So you expose yourself to the truth of the gospel. You take in gospel teaching. You take in the word of God. And as the word of truth is is laying down, pressing down in on your heart, God, by his sovereign will, will bring forth life in you from that word. That seed that is sown in your heart. From that, God brings faith and repentance. It is from the word of God. Taught, preached, Read, sung, prayed, shared, that God regenerates our hearts and gives us a new birth from which we never look back. We never look back. Romans 12, 2 tells us that this internal renewing is an ongoing activity. That's the thing. We've been regenerated. We've been renewed once and for all. We get this language too of being sanctified. That we've been set apart. But we are still being sanctified. The same is true of our renewal. That our heart was renewed. But it is constantly being renewed every day. And so in Romans 12 too. It says do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That's a daily responsibility that we have. To be focusing in on God, to be focusing in on his word and having our minds constantly renewed. We're also told that God has done this lavishly, pouring the Holy Spirit out on believers richly. Now when we see this idea of God pouring out his spirit, we immediately think of, of course, Pentecost, right? Acts chapter 2, when uh, Peter was preaching, well, Peter preached after this, but the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They began to talk, to speak in languages to the Jews who were gathered there, languages they did not know. And people were hearing the wonderful deeds of God in their own tongue, and they were praising God, and 3,000 people were converted, and Peter delivered this sermon. That was when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church. And so Acts 2.33 Well, let me add this. The Holy Spirit was poured out on the church on account of what Christ had accomplished. Christ came. He accomplished his work on the cross. He said, it is finished. He died. He rose again on the third day. And then after that, Jesus ascended into heaven. And the Bible says that he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. And listen to the connection between Christ, his finished work, his exaltation, and the giving of the Spirit that we find in Peter's sermon in Acts 2. He says this, being therefore exalted, speaking of Jesus, at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So we read the prophets in the Old Testament. What we realize is that God promised the Messiah that he would give him the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would renew creation. 
And Christ receives the Holy Spirit. It says that here in this text. Receives the Holy Spirit at the right hand of the Father. And he pours out the Holy Spirit on his church. His very presence poured out on the church. And then there's a little kind of mini Pentecost as it were. Or sort of an outworking of Pentecost that happens in each and every heart. When the Holy Spirit of God is poured out into the individual heart. When that person is saved. When you were saved, when I was saved, God poured out richly his Holy Spirit into us. And he did all of this on the basis of Christ's finished work as Jesus himself sent the Holy Spirit at the right hand of God the Father to us, his church. So here's the main thing that I want you to get out of this point. This is a radical change at the center of our person that makes us capable of carrying out the instructions of verses one to two. So no longer are we enslaved and defined by malice and envy and hatred. Think about it this way. We read verse three and we we feel pretty defeated. But here's the thing, we're not like that anymore. We've been changed on the inside so that now we are actually able. We need to hear this. Christians need to hear this today. We are actually able to do these things that we read in verses 1 to 2. We are actually able not to be malicious. You're not doomed and destined to this. God's power is at work in our hearts. He's regenerated us and he's renewed us. And he daily is sanctifying us and daily renewing us. So that we are actually empowered to keep the instructions of scripture. God doesn't give us just vain commands. He doesn't just give us vain instructions. He says, do this because you can by my power working in you. And it's because of what he's done in our hearts. He hasn't just done this on the outside. He didn't just wash us on the outside. He went down to the deepest, darkest recess of who we are and he changed everything. He transformed it. He washed it. He he gave it rebirth. He renewed it and now it is entirely different. The core of who you are is entirely different now that you are a Christian. And you can obey God's word. We won't always. We know that because we are in, the, we are in this life and, and sin remains and we fight daily. The flesh, we fight daily against Satan, against his temptations. But we are told in God's word that we have immeasurable power poured out into us. What if we started thinking in these terms and started really pursuing this kind of Christian life? Not a kind of defeated Christian life where the same old sins and the same old habits are just going to kind of keep clinging and hanging on and we're just going to keep doing that. I'll be doing that a decade from now. I'll be living that way a decade from now. I'll be treating people like that a decade from now. God's word doesn't say that that's how we live the Christian life. We should be different tomorrow than we are today as God by his spirit who's regenerated and renewed us continues that glorious work. So we're able to love people, even vile sinners, like we were, like we see in verse three. So finally, as we, as we look at the reason for all that we find in verses one and two, we come to our, our final point for today, and that is our firm standing. Look at verse seven. So that being justified 
by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The result of God's merciful saving work. And by the way, I just want to say this here. When we look at this, when we see this word justified, we are meant to see this kind of as a synonym for salvation. So we've just read about how God saved us. And then as the text reads here in verse 7, so that, and actually in Greek, it's having been justified. So, so that having been justified by his grace. In other words, everything that has just been said. And by the way, this makes these ideas, you know, we like as, uh, theologically to kind of parse out all of these various ideas. You know, regeneration and sanctification and justification, all that. And it is important that we recognize the distinction between the forensic God counting us righteous apart from anything of our, of, uh, within us, that God counts us righteous apart from anything we've done, and then it's after that that we begin to grow in that new life. That's very important. But what we find here is justification is being used in a very general sense, just for salvation. And so what we have is being justified or having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So the result, this is the point I wanted to make, the result of God's merciful saving work is that we are made those who will inherit our future hope, eternal life. You know, it is not just our interchange that drives us to treat unbelievers with respect. We know that we're capable of doing this because of what we just looked at. Our hearts have been renewed and transformed, so we actually can do this. But that's not the only reason that we go out and do this, because we simply can. Another thing that drives this is the Christian's worldview and expectation. Remember that at the beginning of chapter 3, we get this reference to rulers and authorities. And the fact is that there are people who oversee this land that we belong to, this, this polis, this political entity, this state that we belong to. There are people who oversee this that do not know the Lord. People who are not godly. People who will put into place laws and policies that do not honor God or lead to the good of man. And that certainly do not lead to the welfare and benefit of Christians on the earth. But that's okay. And the reason it is okay is what we find in Philippians 3, 20 to 21. Our citizenship is in heaven. We're citizens here. And our responsibility here is to do all that we can for the good of man. And we obviously want to advocate for laws that are just and right and that benefit Christians and that do not lead to the persecution of Christians. Of course we do those things. But we always do those things. We always vote. We always talk politics. We always engage in advocacy or whatever else knowing that ultimately we are stuck in a verse 3 kind of world. And our citizenship is not here. Our hope is not on making this world what we envision it to be. Our hope is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body 
to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Consider this. That great power of God that is inside of you that has changed your heart and made you capable of loving other people is the same power with which God will one day take your body if, if he comes back many, many, many years from now which turns back to dust in the earth. He will take that body and he will raise it up to be a new, imperishable body. The same power that has transformed your heart will transform one day your body when Christ returns. And that brings us back to these wonderful songs at the beginning of our service that we sang. And these passages of scripture about Christ, the descendant of David, that God promised David, not just he would have a descendant who would come and who would do great things, God promised David a future king. And a future kingdom, a kingdom filled with citizens, with us, with us, who know Christ, who've been changed by his mercy, who have been renewed in our hearts. We will reign with Christ and his kingdom will be just. It will be righteous. It will be good. There will be no malice or envy or hatred. And that kingdom will come. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your holy scriptures. We thank you for this passage from Titus chapter three where we get Paul telling Titus what he is to remind Christians of. God, we thank you that although there is oftentimes much immorality and hostility in our world perpetuated by those in our culture and those in our government and by those all around us, Father, even in our own families, we are grateful that a kingdom will come in which righteousness will rule, in which you will rule, and we will rule with you as co-heirs. Father, we praise you for your goodness towards us in the gospel. We thank you that apart from us, you saved us. God, we could, we could come up here today and each of us could give our testimony of the ways in which, as we heard in our baptismal service, the ways in which every person is a testimony, every believer is a testimony, a letter of the Spirit, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, a letter of the Spirit. Every person is a testimony of your grace as you came and you saved us gloriously from that old life. And God, we fall into that old life sometimes, so would you empower us? Would you convince us of the reality of our transformed heart? Would we live differently knowing that this power is at work within us? The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead and that will one day raise us from the dead. Father, help us to live the Christian life in this way. Help us to leave here today treating people with courtesy, kindness, gentleness, humility, consideration, respect. Not because it's just polite. Not because it's just the right thing to do. But because of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.